0: This is actually going to be a two parter. Because, as you know, I talk too much. And so I always try to put too much into one sermon. So I decided to just start breaking them up into two. So we're not going to even touch the outline this week. This week will be more introduction, more background information, more preparation for the outline. So you cannot, here's the deal though. Now that you've come this week, you're kind of obligated to come next week. That's the other reason p- preachers do this. Two-part, three-part, they keep you coming back. So, I couldn't wrap it up into one thing. It's going to be continue next week. I labeled this section, this passage here that we'll be looking at in Mark, the Sabbath spectacles. The Sabbath spectacles. Let me define spectacle for you real quick, because there's way, different ways to define it. It just means, in this sense, an event that is witnessed especially one that is very unusual or disturbing. Unusual or disturbing. And that's the thought I want you to think about as we look at these Sabbath spectacles in the Gospel of Mark. I was thinking about things that I have witnessed that were very disturbing. One of them is in this passage, which we'll talk about this morning. But my wife and I were driving to church one morning in West Covina and on the 10 freeway. And as we approached the 57 overpass, I noticed the car lights, police lights up top. And it's just one of those very odd things where you look and you really don't think you saw what you saw, but you look back again and sure enough, there was an individual standing with their hands spread this way on top of the railing uh, at the top of the 57 freeway with the police cars surrounding them. And I should have not said anything, but instead I said, don't look. And so that caused my wife to look. And the moment that happened, it's like time slowed down. The moment that happened, that person jumped from that railing, and I watched. It's the oddest thing, but I was doing, I think, 65 (laughs) at the time. But it was as if the car slowed down because... You watch as the person fell. i never seen this happen. And they fell to their death on the ground. Very disturbing. We sat through that church service that morning completely numb. It was very difficult to even hear anything the pastor was saying. I found out later that it was a young 18-year-old girl and had some trouble with her boyfriend. Tragic. Disturbing. Numbing. Well, the exchange that happens this morning, beloved, between the Pharisees and Jesus in the text before us today is also remarkable, alarming, and disturbing. It is disturbing if you truly have read it or if you're reading it for the first time. It is disturbing to witness how the Pharisees could respond to the words and deeds of Christ as they did. As shocking as it was for my wife and I to watch someone jump to their death, it is equally shocking to me that the religious leaders, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, not only refused and rejected the Son of God, but went further by conspiring to kill him. So let me do a little bit of review to bring us back up to speed. We've been in Mark for several weeks. So let me talk a little bit about it. After Jesus' baptism and temptation in Mark chapter 1, both of those providing proof of His identity as the Christ and the Son of God, Jesus began His ministry and authoritatively called His first disciples to follow Him. Maybe you'll remember they responded to His powerful call without hesitation without reservation. Mark then tells us that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, that is the Jewish temple, where the people met for religious services. And His hearers were astonished, saying, For He taught them as one who had authority. Chapter 1, verse 22. Jesus' words alone in that temple forced a demon out of a possessed man to which the people replied, quote, Even the unclean spirits obey Him. Chapter 1, verse 27. Then we see Jesus supernaturally healing many who are sick with all kinds of diseases and casting out scores of demons one after another. And the crowds grew larger and larger. Meanwhile, Jesus continued to preach His message, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 15. But when we begin chapter 2 of Mark, we entered into something different. It is a series of five stories. We've covered three of them. Five stories that draw attention to Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders of His day who refused to accept his authority and identity and they challenged him every step of the way in his ministry. Let me remind you, the first story, Jesus forgave a person of his sins. Maybe you remember that, the paralytic. And he proved that he had and has the authority to forgive sins by miraculously healing the man. But the religious leaders considered him a blasphemer a blasphemer. That's worthy of death, beloved. And even as the crowd stood amazed and glorified God, they were questioning Him. Second, Jesus was critically questioned about the lowlifes. Quote, lowlifes. He was befriending, spending time with tax collectors and sinners. People that the religious leaders thought Jesus should not be spending time with. Certainly not dining with. Celebrating with. But Levi was rejoicing him being a tax collector in his new relationship with Christ. And Jesus made it clear that he came only for the spiritually sick, for sinners. Third, Jesus was challenged to explain why his disciples did not follow the traditional patterns of fasting. But Jesus insisted that his presence among the people was not a time for sorrow or sadness, but for celebration and joy. That's the third story. This brings us to the final two conflicts in this series of conflict stories. We'll look at them in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Both stories relate to the Sabbath. The Sabbath. These accumulating conflicts present to Mark's readers and us the religious leaders' rejection of Jesus' authority and ultimately what led up to their decision to destroy him to destroy him now before we read the text before we read it I just want to give you some background because I think what happens is we read the text and if you don't have background information you really miss it you really don't understand how significant the story is or what exactly is going on or why the Pharisees are upset. So let me give you a little information about the Sabbath, about the Sabbath. There are two things that clearly defined a Jewish person. And I would say a religious Jewish person, even to this day, this would be true. It made them stand out from all the other nations or people. And those two things were circumcision and the Sabbath. Circumcision and the Sabbath. It was part of the nation's DNA. I was trying to think of a, a, an, a story or an illustration. For instance, like thinking of the United States of America, one of the things that sets us apart, theoretically, from everyone else is our freedom. Is our freedom. Some would say it's our guns. And uh, I, I would think that also is part of our freedom. Freedom. But depending on what state you're in, for instance, if you were in Texas, what certainly sets Texas apart from the rest of the states in the Union is that everyone has a gun, and they display them happily. So you would, you would identify, if you're in Texas, they're gun bearers. And in a sense, in the U.S. also, because it is not so every other part of the, the world. They're not allowed to bear arms. So it identifies us. It, it signifies who we are, in a sense. For the Jews, it was the Sabbath, and it was circumcision. Both of these were given to Israel, the nation, by God. They were both established by God. They didn't make them up. Keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. Turn to your left, far, far back to the beginning of the Bible, page 61, if you're using one of those church Bibles. Exodus chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Old Testament, second book of the Torah, the law, This is where the Ten Commandments are are found, one of the spots. Exodus 20, we'll look at verses 8 through 11. Let's see what the Word of God says to the nation of Israel. Chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. That's like their cattle, their sheep, their horses, cows. Or the sojourner who is within your gates. That would be a a visitor or a stranger that was visiting the nation. For in six days, verse 11, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The command is simple. It's a day of rest for all, including animals. It's a day where no work takes place. Pretty simple, right? Now, in our culture, we're accustomed to a weekend. Right? Five days of work, theoretically, and then two days of rest. It's really Saturday's a work day to get everything done that you couldn't accomplish during the week. So really, we also have one day of rest. But for us, we have this idea. Five work days, two days of rest. Unless you're working four tens, then it's four work days, three days of rest. But in ancient culture, this is where you have to get your minds around it and get out of the 2010 generation that we're in. In ancient culture, the idea that you would rest one day was foreign. It was very odd. They had no idea about weekends or 40-day work weeks. They worked every day. That was the norm. In fact, Jews were accused by some of just being lazy. Just being lazy. Because on one day out of the week, they would do no work. But the day was very significant for them. It was not a day for them to be lazy For the pattern of resting one day reminded them of their Creator God who made the world in six days, that's what the text says, and rested on the seventh. It was a day of rest and worship. And according to the Old Testament, if you look at Exodus 31, you don't need to do it right now, verses 12 through 18, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, The Sabbath was given to the nation of Israel as a sign to remind them that the God of creation had set them apart as a nation by rescuing them and giving them His holy law. See, God was going to be their holy God and they were going to be His holy people setting apart one day of every week to rest, and remember their mighty saving covenant-making god it was very important to the nation and their identity failure to keep the sta- sabbath or work instead of rest was punishable by death exodus chapter 31:15 it's no small matter you work on the sabbath as a jewish person you defy the holy day you are to die. Keep the Sabbath or die. Over the years, after the law was given, in an attempt to keep from disobeying the fourth commandment, rest and work were defined and redefined until you ended up with a day, that is the Sabbath, that turned into a heavy and heartless burden instead of a glorious and joy-filled blessing. Hundreds of man-made regulations were invented to define what it was or what work was and was not permissible on the Sabbath. They had added 39 classes of work. 39 classes that were a violation of the Sabbath. Let me give you just a few of them so you can get the feeling of what Jesus was experiencing and exposed to when He came to earth. Tying or loosening knots was one category of work. You were allowed to use one hand, but if you used two, it was considered work and that was forbidden. Sewing, more than one stitch, was considered work. Writing, more than one letter, was considered work. It was forbidden to set a dislocated foot or hand on the Sabbath. They needed to wait till the next day. Only if something was life-endangering were you permitted, according to the rabbis, to do something about it. There is a real danger, beloved, when we elevate our rules to the same level as God's instructions. Just think about that. And that's what they had done. Three categories. Plowing, hunting, and butchering. These were also within these 39 categories. Categories of work. Which would be expected. That is work. But you might find this one very odd. Under hunting. If a man was bitten by a flea on the Sabbath, he had to allow the flea to keep on biting. If he tried to stop the flea from biting or killed it, he was guilty of hunting on the Sabbath. (laughs) Yeah. Mark chapter 2. Now that we have some background, let's read this text before us. Page 838, if you're using one of those church Bibles. Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. Two stories of the final five conflict stories we'll be looking at. Two stories that relate to the Sabbath. Next week, like I said, this week is all preparation. Next week, we will focus focus in on three disturbing characteristics of Jesus' opponents that we, as Jesus' followers, must not imitate. But this week, I just want to set us up for that. So make sure you come back next week. By the way, I'll mention real quickly, because I have a minute. We now record the sermons. Well, we have been recording them, but they're available online. So if you go to our website, www.summitbiblechurch.org, it's a long one. And there's a tab there, and it's called Members. You don't have to be a member to click the tab. That's just what we call it. Members, regular attenders, all of you who come to Summit Bible Church, click the tab, and you'll be able to, you'll have to enter a password. And the password I'm going to give it to you is 2010 Summit Bible. It's that simple. 2010 Summit Bible. It's when we started. That'll give you access to the downloads of the sermons in case you miss one. They're for you. They're not for anybody else. They're for you. I shepherd this body, not another body. Okay, Mark chapter 2, 23, beginning. One Sabbath, He, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to Him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Verse 6, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So like I said, before we won't look at in detail at the Pharisees' words and actions that reveal to us some very disturbing and harmful characteristics that we want nothing to do with, that we want to avoid, that we do not want to mimic in our lives. We're going to look at that next week. What I want you to know this week is that Jesus and His disciples did not violate the Sabbath. They did not violate the Sabbath. They did not violate God's law. They did nothing wrong. The conflict arose because of a violation of the traditions added to God's Word and elevated as having the same authority as God's Word. That is what was being broken before the Pharisees' eyes. Jesus was not in conflict with God. The Pharisees' traditions were. Matthew 5.17 Jesus says in that Gospel that He came to fulfill the law. If Jesus is now breaking the law, that would make Him a sinner. And we know that He never sinned and there was no sin in Him. So He's not violating the law. Look back at chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. It says, One Sabbath He was going through the grain fields. So He's walking along, Him and His disciples. There's grain fields, high stalks, it says that His disciples begin to pluck some of the heads of grain. They pluck them. And immediately, that's what causes the Pharisees, who are watching them, to say, look, look! They are violating the law. So the actual act of walking through someone else's field, because we know it wasn't their field, and taking some grain to eat, was a merciful provision for the people instituted by God and was not unlawful. In other words, they are not pointing to the fact that maybe that they're stealing grain from someone else's property. That's not what they're saying is unlawful. Look at Deuteronomy. Turn back to the left. We're back to the Torah again. Page 165, if you're using one of those church Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Chapter 23. I always find it fascinating. People sometimes categorize or generalize the Old Testament as God being wrathful and angry and mean like an ogre. And the New Testament is filled with love and grace and as if God changed. So He's one God in the Old Testament. He's one God in the New. That's not true. He's the same God in both places. He's a God of grace. He's a God of love. He's a God of compassion and mercy and kindness. Look at His laws. Deuteronomy 23 We'll look at verse 24. Here, one of the laws that were given to His people. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. In other words, no take-home, no doggy bag. Verse 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. This was a provision for the people so that they wouldn't starve to death. So you have farmers who their primary duty was to farm grapes or wheat or grain. And all he's saying here is, listen, if you're walking through and you're hungry, you can take some until you're satisfied. You just can't start chopping down his grain with your sickles so that you're actually harvesting his field. It is his field. There was a... A merciful provision provided for the people. So this is exactly what Jesus and His disciples are doing. They're walking through a grain field. Under the law, they are permitted to take some grain and eat it. To eat it. It is the additional human regulations created after God gave His commands regarding the Sabbath that defined plucking heads of grain as the same as reaping and harvesting. As reaping and harvesting, which was work or labor. And therefore, plucking in the Pharisees' eyes was forbidden to do on the Sabbath. That was the issue. Because they now are saying, listen, even if you pluck some grain, we're considering that harvesting. And harvesting clearly is work. Therefore, you just worked on the Sabbath. Jesus, you and your disciples are violating the Sabbath. That's what's going on. It's their regulations that he's violating, not the law of God. So he responds to them. He responds to them. Look at verse 25 through 26 of Mark chapter, back to Mark chapter 2. He says to them, quote, "...have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the name of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him." So Jesus is saying, remember David, the man who became the greatest king of Israel, the man who God said was a man after his own heart, First Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus who was very familiar with the scriptures took them back to a story that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 1 through 6. This is the story he's calling their attention back to. 1 Samuel chapter 21 don't turn there verses 1 through 6. And here's how here's the story basically in a nutshell. David and his men were on the run from Saul, the king of Israel at the time, who was trying to kill them. He was trying to kill them, and they were starving. And they were in need of some food. So David comes along this priest, and he asked them asked the priest, Hey, do you have anything to eat? My boys and I have a rumbly in the tummy. But all that the priest had at the time was bread. That was used in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable temple. It was the place where the priest entered in, sacrifices were made, offerings were made. It was the place where God was worshipped, where the nation of Israel worshipped God. And they had this bread, and we're not going to go into a long explanation about this bread, but it's the bread of presence. It was only to be eaten by the priest according to the ceremonial law, Leviticus chapter 24. Only the priest was to eat this bread. It was sacred bread. It was set apart. And yet David and his men took this bread, ate it, and there's no record in the Scriptures of them being condemned by God. In fact, to the contrary, we read a little bit later that the priest prayed for God's approval and consequently gave the sacred bread to David. You'll find that in First Samuel chapter 22, verse 10. Well, how could that be? How could the priest give bread that was clearly set apart for him that no one else was supposed to eat, give it to David and his men to eat, and yet God did not strike them dead? And here's the principle. Human need overruled or superseded the ceremonial regulation. I'll repeat that. Human need overruled or superseded the ceremonial regulation. When we look at the parallel story in Mark, that we find also in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew adds this particular comment to the story. He says that the disciples ate the grain because they were hungry. They weren't just walking through the field going, la, 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 we pluck some grain. This is... They were hungry. They were doing it out of need. They had a need. They were within their rights, according to Deuteronomy, to pluck from the field, a stranger's field, and to satisfy their need. They, Jesus' disciples, like I said, were hungry. They needed nourishment just as David and his men were in need of nourishment. Jesus was drawing upon this story as an analogy of himself and his disciples. Same exact scenario. Both of them doing something that was, quote, deemed unlawful. Unlawful. So listen to what some of the commentators say to try to help you understand this. I'll quote one. David's uncondemned act was a reminder to the Pharisees that their rigid demands concerning the traditional observance of the Sabbath were inconsistent in the case of David. In other words, you condemn me and my disciples, are you also willing to condemn David for what he did? Here's another one. The fact that God does not condemn David for his action indicates that the narrowness with which the scribes interpreted the law was not in accordance with the overall meaning of Scripture. One more. If David had a right to ignore a divinely ordained ceremonial provision when necessity demanded this, then would not Jesus, God's anointed, the Christ, the Son of God, have a similar right under similar conditions of need to set aside a totally unwarranted man-made Sabbath regulation. That's what he's saying. Jesus was not suggesting here that it's okay to violate the laws of God. And he did not violate the laws of God. But what he was telling them or what he was indicating to them was that the religious leadership had altogether made the law of the Sabbath something that it was not meant to be. Through their inflexible rules and their extreme fences they had built to keep people from crossing over their man-made lines. That's what he's saying. The Sabbath had become a prison for the people, and God's intention for giving it had been buried and lost in all the bureaucracy that had been added to it. Look at verse chapter two, chapter two, verse twenty-seven. He said to them. So he, he brings this argument from Scripture. He's trying to help them see the error of their ways. Now he makes another argument. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's saying in a sense that the Sabbath was made to be a benefit for man. To be a benefit for man. That they might rest from the strain of work and worship their Creator fully and without distraction. Therefore, he's saying, as you apply the Sabbath law, it must not become a burden or hurt those it was intended to bless. You have interpreted it Jesus is saying, as if God made man so that they might be slaves to the Sabbath. But it is the exact opposite. He gave the Sabbath to man because of His care for them. Because of His care for them. Verse 28. And then He adds this. Of chapter 2. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus regularly referred to Himself as the Son of Man. You'll see that again in verse 10, where He forgave and miraculously healed the paralytic. He refers to Himself there as the Son of Man. He does it here again. He is making a claim that He has the absolute right and authority to interpret what is right and proper behavior on the Sabbath and to remove all legalistic barnacles that were clinging to it. That's what he's saying. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one that determines how to rightly understand how we are to function on this day. And you're challenging me. You're challenging me. Are you kidding? Don't you know that the Sabbath was made for man? Do you not remember David? Then turn to chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. Another Sabbath story. It says, And He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Here we go again. Jesus is prepared to heal a man. He knows what they're thinking. He knows that they're not going to be comfortable with Him healing on the Sabbath because as far as they're concerned, that's work. That would be a violation of the law. So he, before He does it, He reasons with them. He reasons with them. He reaches out to them graciously. He appeals to them. He presents two extreme contrasts. So in one sense, He's asking this question. Which of the two would be in harmony with the purpose of the Sabbath? To do good and save life or to do evil and kill? Now, we're going to look at this in a little more detail next week. But what answer would you expect from a rational person? Come on, of course. The response should, You would expect them to say, well, of course, Jesus, the Sabbath is to do good and to heal, to save life. That would be the right thing to do. But the text says they remained silent. They remained silent because affirming the right answer would mean they could not condemn Jesus for what He was about to do, which was heal on the Sabbath by restoring this man's withered hand. It's shocking, beloved. It's shocking. Jesus patiently attempts to show the Pharisees the error of their understanding and the misrepresentation of Sabbath observance by citing the same Scripture that they say they're authorities in, that they claim to know, that they're supposed to be experts in, that they say they submit to, by appealing to His sovereign authority as Lord of the Sabbath, by using questions that should have caused a thinking man to think twice about their position, about the rebellious heart that they had, about their hostility. But guess what? They didn't listen to any of it. And instead, they immediately go and consult with the Herodians, which we'll talk more about next week, on how to destroy him. So, don't think too badly about the Pharisees, by the way, because next week, next week, we get to talk about how we do model them how we become hypercritical, hard-hearted, and hateful, just as they were. But that's next week. So you're off the hook this week. But look forward, come back next week. But I did want to say something this week. I want you to think about this. In In spite of all that Jesus had done, you've got to see the scenario. Here comes this man, speaking authoritatively, healing one person after another. Think about the people that He healed. They were suffering. They were in misery for years. And this man comes on the scene and in a minute, in a moment, in an instant, heals them, restores them fully. Demons are cast out. No longer under their control. Men under their control or influence Tells a paralytic, get up and walk. Forgives him of his sins. Speaks with authority. Here on the Sabbath, his boys... His men are following Him. They do something that's within their right. They're hungry. They pluck some grain. Now Jesus on another Sabbath is about to heal another man. You know what's so funny? The Pharisees, if you read the text, do you remember it says they were watching because they knew He would heal them. They knew. So there's no denying. They know what He's doing. That Jesus, He's going to heal another one. I just know it. Think about that. He heals this withered man's hand. And they say after they've seen all that, their response is not, wow. Jesus. I, we need to rethink what we've been doing. You truly do demonstrate yourself to be the Almighty Powerful One, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the entire universe, the Lord of health and sickness, and you are Lord. We need to bow down before you and ask you to tell us how to interpret the law. No. They conspire with the Herodians on how they're going to destroy him, how they're going to murder this man. For what? So, in spite of all that, right? In spite of all that since our time Christ has done, because this was before he even went to the cross. We now live on this side of the cross. So we saw all of Jesus' ministry... And the climax of that ministry when He goes to a cross and willingly is nailed to it and suffers under the wrath of His Father for the sin of His people. Dying, being buried, and resurrecting again and calling us to believe and to follow Him. We live on this side of the cross, right? But you know what? Nothing has really changed. Nothing has really changed. People's rejection is still real and disturbing. It's disturbing. It's just more civilized and difficult to detect. I was I'll illustrate this for you. I was watching television and Susan Boyle do you guys know who Susan Boyle is? She's that lady from Europe or whatever, England. I'm gonna mess it all up, but she went on what's the show she went on? Yeah, American Idol. So she won. She became a big hit, Susan Boyle, and she's like this wonderful success story. This is not about Susan Boyle. I just want to let you know I saw Susan Boyle. She has an incredible voice, and she was singing O Holy Night, and I think it was maybe in Times Square or something in New York. I'm not sure of the place. But they they drew back, and I don't know if you know the song. You probably have heard it if you've lived here for a while, but O Holy Night is just a beautiful Christmas song. And as they pan back, and Susan Boyle is singing this song, and this is just one of the things about Christmas. I do love Christmas because everywhere you go, for the most part, music is exalting our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even if they don't know it, it is. But she's singing in Times Square, and I pull back, and all the people are they're singing the song with her. Here's, some, here's just a couple of the lyrics. Christ is the Lord, O praise His name forever. Behold your King... Before him lowly bend. That's what they were singing. And I I promise you that hundreds and thousands of people will sing that song a holy night this year. But they are not praising the Lord, and they certainly will not bow their knee before him as king. They're still rejecting him. They're still resisting his authority in their lives. They still refuse to call Him Lord. We in America have domesticated Jesus. We've taken the wild out of Him. The Lord out of Him. The King out of Him. And now He's just a baby or our buddy. But not Lord or King. Not Lord or King. It is as Jesus said, they honor Me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from Me. Throughout many places in the coming weeks, people will sing about the King. Yet, our nation is the biggest distributor of pornography and its biggest buyer. We consume more drugs in this world than any other nation. Because we're so well off. We've got the money to buy them. Abortion is a regular practice in our cities. And materialism rules in our hearts. So to a degree, to a great degree, beloved, even after we have been witness to or witnessed all that Christ has done, we refuse Him as a nation and we reject Him. And I venture to say, if He was here, we would kill Him. So this morning, during our, our time of reflection, Pray. To God, ask God to reveal to you and to your heart if you are still in that state. Are you still a rebel before the king? Or have you still refused as the Pharisees refused, even after all he had said and done? Are you refusing to recognize him rightly as Lord, as king, as master in all of his glory? Willing to submit and come under His authority. Letting Him tell you how to run your life and interpret the Word of God. Letting Him direct you. Letting Him sit on the throne of your heart. Pray to God. And for those of us who who do recognize Him as Lord, pray that He would continue to work on our hearts, that we would bow lower, that we would get on the ground before Him. He is a king, beloved. He is an almighty, sovereign king. He is not a helpless baby in a manger. He is not.